you know, the good news about Dita is that it's an architecture and the bad news about Dita is that it's an architecture. And so by its nature, it implies that somebody has to make decisions. My name is Amber Swope. I'm an information architect and I offer consulting services through Dita Strategies. All right. Well, you have been in the information architecture game for a while, right? Um, I think you may have introduced interaction information architecture to me. Well, I think that information architecture as a discipline has been around since about the 80s with Peter Morville um, really establishing it as a separate discipline. But in terms of structured content, I would say it really has come into the fore in the last, you know, 15 years because, you know, the good news about DITA is that it's an architecture and the bad news about DITA is that it's an architecture. And so by its nature, it implies that somebody has to make decisions. And therefore, because it's an architecture, that person would be an information architect. <laughs> and so, um, but before folks weren't working in structured content, their information architecture was there. It was simply implied. Uh, when I talk to folks and I ask how many of you are information architects, very few people will raise their hands. But when I ask, do you um, control the organization and the hierarchy of your content? Do you apply keywords or index terms or search filters or any of these pieces of metadata that would increase accessibility? Once I go through that list, almost everybody raises their hand. And, and what they didn't realize is they were doing information architecture. They just didn't know they had. They were doing it because it wasn't a named role in their organization. And when you move into an architecture like DITA, where if you, for example, want to use conditional filtering, then it makes sense that you would all agree upon, well, we're going to use an include versus an exclude paradigm. Uh, we're going to use the same values for audience, platform, et cetera. And the person who leads those conversations is probably your information architect. Oh, whether or not they know it, the person, and there's always been that person on a team who is the person who is looking to help the other members of the team be consistent and to have an eye towards what does this look like when, uh, you know, a, a user sees multiple deliverables from our company, they should have the same look and feel and all that other stuff. So it's, it's always been there. It just wasn't recognized until folks moved into, again, an architecture like DITA where um, you can do almost everything three different ways. But, so, but if you want consistent results, everybody needs to do it the same way. Yeah, that makes sense. The, um, I think the, the thing to say about that is that, you know, the, issue with data being an architecture is that it is specifically designed to be flexible enough to cover the way that an organization needs to do it, right? So, you know, that's kind of a gift and a curse. Um, but what it means is that these set of principles, if you have an information architect, can be applied almost anywhere, right? Yeah. And, and for me, it's the reality is, is that you have an information architect. You just might have a whole team of them. Uh, and one of the, the things to, to consider is, you know, 
really basic structural things. So I was working with a company that acquired another company and they were all excited because they were both in Dita and like, oh, this is going to be so easy for us to, to move our content into one location and for us to reuse it. And one group had created their, their collections that went into a chapter as a separate map. Great. And they included the parent topic within the map. The other organization took their maps with their collections for that go into the chapter, but they included the containing, you know, chapter landing page topic in the book map. So they couldn't share maps because something as simple as where you put the containing topic was not the same. It was an architectural decision made by each team and they they got the exact same result when they published, but they couldn't share content because if one used the map, the other, you know, they would get inconsistent results if they shared the same map. And that's an architectural decision. Yeah, so what typically ends up happening there is that you have an architect come in and marry the decisions together or migrate in one direction or the other. Um, we have, a, we have, well, we have a couple of customers, we have one I just talked to that is grows by acquisition and you know they'll acquire organizations that are in data and organizations that are not organizations that are in word um and i was i got into a conversation with the the leader of this group over there and he was like you know at the end of the day like you you can't just like jam data together but what it does is it gives you this really consistent target and like so now we get these like very consistent onboarding streams into our our information architecture. And I thought that was a really interesting take on that. My belief is that if you do information architecture correctly, and I'm gonna make a, a really important distinction here, I'm talking about the management information architecture. That is the architecture of your managed content. That is distinctly different for a lot of organizations from the architecture of the content in a given delivery platform. And so that act, that, that, that series of that process that you just discussed is that harmonization of requirements that is the the key to the management information architect's role is to to look at all the downstream stakeholders look at the authors uh, look at you know, the reporting and the integrations with their systems and harmonize all their requirements into a transactional framework that allows the content to be stored consistently and then powered through the different platforms via metadata. And, and that's the holy grail, is that you are able to, to structure the content for multitudes of groups with varying uh, subject matters and maybe even varying content type, but that you're able to harmonize it down to a consistent storage structure with metadata on it that makes each of these pieces useful. Yeah, I, I I think that's a really tight and good definition of like what you're looking for in uh, information architecture. So one of the things that you said there was you know, the difference between management and delivery information architecture. Um, so I think that's probably the first time that a lot of people have been introduced to that concept. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Like what? So first of all, just do a one-on-one -on -one definition of like management versus delivery architecture. I'm personally curious as a follow-on, 
if you consider yourself to be more of a management information architecture delivery, or if that doesn't matter, it's the same thing. Um, and then let's just talk about it. Sure. Um, the management information architect is the role that is responsible for the structure of content that is managed in the XML source, in our case, when we're talking about data. And that it means that, for instance, if they're storing the content in your repository, that regardless of whether it's for business unit A, B, or C, that it has, you know, a concept has these, the structure. Um, it may have additional metadata on it by its purpose that, oh, this is a process or this is, you know, a, a certain other type of concept maybe. Or if you're working in an industry where the, the traditional data types don't work for you, maybe you have other, other types. Um, but that it all is in one content model, that the use of the elements is clear and consistent across the topics, and that the structure of the topics and the maps is consistent, and that um, we know through metadata what each piece is and what its purpose is, and that it can be used for you know, downstream delivery. And that, you know, for me, it's, it's all about managing the XML. The delivery architect usually works with the content strategist and the UX folk to, to look at what the requirements are for successful delivery for any given platform. So I have a client that has content that is delivered to a reference library as well as to an LMS. And of course, those are very different delivery experiences. The oh, yeah, LMS sure. has a lot of different metadata that would just simply not be appropriate to have available in the reference library. And, you know, for I'll give a classic example for an LMS. If you have a series of questions and they're being presented for assessment, can the order in which the questions is presented be randomized? Must it be randomized? Or must it always be the same? And it's in the order that the person who assembled the assessment collection meant for it to be delivered. Well, that's, that may be metadata that the, the person who's creating that collection knows nothing about. But by the nature of the course, the LMS says, oh, we cannot randomize these or we must randomize these. If they are taking that same collection of questions and putting it out as a practice test in the reference library, the reference library doesn't care about that. It's pre presenting them probably in, in a PDF or something because it's just a, you know, here is a resource for you to look at. Same content, possibly same map. Same everything coming out of the management IA, but when it goes to the different delivery systems, the information that is going to be needed to be there um, for the successful delivery would be very different. And usually it's around in the metadata. And that's where, you know, because the context is where delivery shines, right? What are you trying to accomplish as the user in that specific platform? And um, as the management IA, I don't know all the ins and outs of every platform. I trust the person who's doing the, the delivery IA to tell me what they need. So do you consider yourself to be like a management IA versus yes. a delivery IA? You do, yep. okay. Mm -hmm. So if somebody came to you and they were like, hey, I want you to do this thing and you thought it was delivery IA, would you not do that? I wouldn't, no. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of delivery IAs. Do they call themselves that? I've never, I like... And the reason that we came up with this distinction is 
when you go into Google and type information architecture training, 90%, maybe 95% of the results in that search come back to designing UX for a website. I was going to say, like, I feel like what I think of as somebody that you're describing as a delivery IA, I would say, oh, they're like a, uh, like a content UX person or they're a content strategist or something like that. So you have those roles there, but at, when you start to get to the negotiations on the nuts and bolts, here's a classic. Ordered lists and unordered lists. You know, in DITA, it's OL and UL. If it's going out to a portal, it's, you know, chances are they're not presenting XML. They're presenting HTML. Well, what do they want that HTML or are they using JSON or whatever their, whatever their format is, their, their code source? What needs to be there for them to present the, you know, the, the, the alphanumeric character of their choice or whatever it's supposed to be, we don't dictate that in the source. You know, it could be a flashing number one with zebra stripes. We don't care if that's what the, the UX person says they need. But if they the UX person says, no, we it must be, you know, a, a Roman numeral with a decimal point then the IA needs to say, okay, well, the code that we get needs to tell us exactly what the starting, the top level, first level ordered list item, what is its character format? Yeah, that makes sense. I just, I still feel like those people are just UX people. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is my, this is my, oh, like, no, I think that they are UX people, which is why when you type in information architecture, it all goes to UX courses. <laughs> you know, yeah, and their content models tend to be pretty minimal in real, you know, if they're particular if they're HTML and they're relying on a lot of output classes or, you know, and they're embedding their styling directly into their their markup. Um, but that negotiation, so the classic is where that exact situation where the ordered list needed to start with an alpha character, not a number. So not number one, but capital A, then what we needed to negotiate is, well, this content is coming from the, the management system. Then it's getting transformed as it comes to the data open toolkit. At that point, do you need us to tell you, you know, if it's destined for this, this platform, it must start with X or can you guys, you know, know that simply because of some other information and, and those negotiations, um, the content strategist doesn't care. Honestly, the UX, the traditional UX person who's going, well, you know, search and stuff like that, they don't care. There's somebody on that team who's looking at the content model and saying, when I get, when, in order for me to display X the way I need to, I need X markup to come to me. And that's where we negotiate and then we determine which of the rendering opportunities in the pipeline. And I say that because in many of these larger systems, you render that or process that content two or three times. Which one of them is going to instantiate that value so that the downstream system gets what they need and we leave the management content as pristine as possible? It's a little bit of an interesting take on that that I guess I hadn't really thought about before. So I, I like that. 
the, so what you're kind of saying is that the delivery information architect is the one that cares about the information coming into the delivery system. And the structure of it that they need in order to meet the vision that the content strategist and the UX person said that they want to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I think of architecture in general as this transactional framework and, and the management IA is defining the management end. And then there could be N number of delivery ends and each one of them needs to say, hey, when it, that piece of content comes to me, it needs to look like X. Well, you know what this actually is? This is analogous to somebody being um, a database architect and somebody being an API architect. Like that's literally, you're doing the same thing, right? So like you need this API interface, which is the structure and the markup and information on the content to fulfill this business um, objective. But on the back end, you need this database to store these things. And you have to negotiate the transfer of those things into those different those different streams, right? Yeah, in its purest form, I would love to be able to see the you know, most of these delivery platforms have a database behind them. I would love to see their content model and be able to um, look, you know, and compare it to the content model for what we have in the management IA and then figure out, are there other systems also at play? Um, and then what are their content models? Because we want to have them all harmonized into a seamless process. And ideally, we leave the structure alone and we do it via metadata or some other way. So for instance, in the case with, oh, on this platform, this publication you know, type, this deliverable needs to, all its ordered lists need to start with A. Well, I'm not going to go put that in the markup. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to put a piece of metadata on that, that map that says, oh, it's this kind of map. And so when the delivery system gets the output, it goes, oh, it's this type of map. We give a different ordered list format. So this actually gets to one of the things that, you know, I feel like it pops up somehow in my life, like every two years, which is like just the concept of like isness. Um, so like, what is this, right? And like, instead of saying, oh, we need this to look like this, you say, well, oh, this is a, um, you know, Roman map. That's a terrible example, but it's going to have Roman numerals when you when you um, publish the list items. So you in, you infer delivery from the isness of the content. Correct. The the metaphor I like to use is you know back in the old days when you had a shipping container, it was a dumb box. It literally was a box that held stuff. Now you can walk up to a shipping container and scan it and it will tell you all kinds of things about itself. It will know where it's been. It knows what's inside. It knows when the last person who opened it was and what their authentication was. They, you know, technology has made that box smart. And we need to think about our content that way. You know, back in the bad old days, it was just words, right? If you think back, you know, 40 years, it was just words. And then we started trying to make it smarter. We put, put it, we digitized things, and then we moved it into structured content, which makes it more purpose-driven. You know, that's why data has content types. I like to take it even a step further and say, it's great that you're a concept. Are you a process? Are you a description? What what kind of per what, what are you? And again, for for folks that are not in, for instance, the high tech space, um, but are using structured content in more 
innovative ways, they might all, their topic type might all be topic, but then we need to know what's the purpose of that piece of content. Um, and so we want to know what are what why were you written? What purpose do you serve to the end, re, end user? And and having that piece of metadata on there allows us to send that piece of content through down you know through the whole system to places where if they're trying to do dynamic delivery, they can say, oh, um, this person has logged in, they're trying to do X task, they have these products, and they have this, let's say their profile has an experience level on it by, by audience or something. And the piece we will have sent through maybe five pieces of content that all are for the right industry, the right product, but maybe they have different experience levels, or maybe they mapped to different um you know, other, other ways that we would differentiate them. And we're able to make those pieces of content smart. They end up in the right place, in the right context, because they came through and they were able to be, you know, literally scanned and like, oh, I deliver you under these circumstances. I deliver this other piece instead when this other parameter is different. Yeah, it knows what it is. And I'm glad you said that because business is not one thing. It is a bunch of stuff. So like the place I always like to start with this is about like a person. So, you know, if I do the isness for me, like I'm uh, a content person, right? Like I am a content person. That's one of my attributes. Um, I'm a white male, right? That's another one of my attributes. Um, I'm a motorcyclist. I'm a, I'm a rock climber. Like these are all my different. And like the further into that stuff you get, you could be like, oh, well, you know, what is the likelihood that we'd want to deliver him to a rock gym? The the thing about isness is that the more you identify, uh, the more other folks can know about that. And and for people, that runs into privacy issues. For content, that's a good thing, right? Because it allows us to provide the right content to the right person at the right time in the right experience. Um, and to conversely make sure that content that for you know intellectual property rights reasons don't doesn't go to the wrong person. We're able to say, oh, unless you can authenticate to this security level, uh-uh, you don't get this. You get a sanitized version maybe, or you get no information about this at all. Yeah, I mean, the, you can use you know this metadata that is derived from business to do literally anything you want with delivery and security is an aspect of that. And one of the benefits of like data versus some of the other structured content types is that you can drive that security all the way down to the word level if you really need or want to. Um, Correct. And you know, we wouldn't necessarily want to do that to the word level. We'd want to probably do it at the block element level at the lowest, just my, my, my two cents in there just for, uh, for, <laughs> for guide, guide rails. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so where I've seen that is I have seen circumstances where phrases or sentences are taken out of block element. So, and I think that like that, um, I think there are circumstances where that's legitimate, but I think, okay, you know, broadly speaking, block element, like paragraph is probably the, the right 
It's the safest, particularly if, um, because, you know, once you start messing with the context within a block element, or, you know, let's say that, let's say it's within a block element, but it's at a sentence level, um, then you end up with word order and translation, and it's just, it gets dicey. You know, the the return on um, investment diminishes with the more complexity that you add. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a tipping point there, right? And this is where we, you know, we want to harmonize all these requirements into the simplest architecture that we can make so that authors have the best chance of doing it correctly. Because we can have all these grandiose plans, but unless we create an, a, a management architecture that multiple authors can successfully and consistently use, then it doesn't make a difference. The end user will never get what the, the, the UX person envisions because the, the content just wasn't structured in a way that would, would allow that. And I, you know, I, I like to say that content is information architecture in action. If you cannot have 20 authors use your same your architecture and use it the same way and it's easy for them to do so then then you are not going to have a successful implementation <laughs> <laughs>